Do you want to maximize your success with NCUA? Join Mark Trichel as he shares with you the insider's view on passing your exam with Flying Colors. The With Flying Colors podcast is sponsored by Credit Union Exam Solutions by Mark Trichel. If you would like to work directly with the Credit Union Exam Solutions team and receive support to optimize your results with NCUA so you save time and money, visit us at marktrichel.com to find out more. Hey, everyone. Welcome back for another episode of With Flying Colors. I'm Mark Trichel, and I'm pleased today to be joined by Steve Farr. Steve, how are you doing today? I'm doing just fine. Just fine. I think, Steve, the last time we chatted, it was on Capitol. And before that, we talked about the exam, NCUA exam priority letters. One of those priorities in that discussion was a discussion on loan participation. So today's topic is a discussion about loan participations and eligible obligations. Before we jump into specifics, for those of you who may not have heard those previous podcasts or don't know your background, could you give us a little bit of your biography in credit unions? Very good, yeah. I would start out as an examiner out here in uh, Montana and quickly had to deal with a couple of failures of small institutions around my hometown, which led me to doing problem resolution for NCOA for the next like 15 years. Then I went to the central office and worked on problem resolution at more of a national level and training problem case officers and ended up doing a lot of regulatory work at the end of my 35-year career. Yeah, it was a great career. You know, you and I worked together on the West Coast and on the East Coast and you played a big role in a lot of NCUA policies that people deal with out there, like the capital rule that we discussed and you know, training the examiners and the problem resolution. So excited to kind of walk through this topic with you today. And as I mentioned, this topic of the loan participations is in the priority letter this year. And I think one of the reasons you pointed out in the past podcast is because of the growth in that area. So could you speak to the numbers that you're seeing and that NCUA is seeing as well on these topics? Yeah, when you look at just the last year's trends, you can certainly see why this garnered NCUA's attention for the examination priority letter and that the outstanding balance of participation loans went from $46 billion to $59 billion. So that was a big jump compared to all the prior years, which was kind of interesting because some of the other big programs had kind of come to an end, like the uh, taxi program was winding down, certainly, and the outstanding amount of those. But partition loan, participation loans are now up to 4.7% of loans. The eligible obligations increased also significantly. They went from 1.69% of loans to to 3%. So that that was also a pretty big jump. On the good side is the performance of participation loans improved, especially when you care to prior years. And once again, I think that's the losses from the taxi medallion loans kind of coming off the system and that now delinquencies down to 0.4% and it was running around 0.7 in prior years and charge-offs, well, like all charge-offs in the last year, they were also down to 0.18% compared to 0.3% in 20. So the performance on them is, is quite good. I don't have much on yields, but I suspect that they're pretty healthy. 
Very good. And so you touched on the fact that the medallion losses have rolled off. That can assist the numbers. You and I are both familiar from our time in CUA and different roles that we played relative to how those taxi medallion loans performed or at the end of the life of most of those, how they did not perform very well. Any thoughts on lessons learned relative to participation loans as it relates specifically to the what could have been gleaned from that medallion situation? Yeah, that one is interesting because you had the loans that had a really nice yield to them. And you had just a few credit unions producing a large volume of them, so they couldn't absorb it all into their books. So it became kind of a widespread participation and everybody's like, well, but they're doing so good. But we always kind of tended to forget that they were unique and asset almost like art. In a participation loan, you can do participation loans that you don't normally underwrite. And the thing is, is I know some of the credit unions way out here in the West in rural areas that were participating in taxi medallion loans. And you're like, what would they really know about that business? But they did purchase participations in them. And those were tended to be ones that were really quick to say, you know, we're just going to write all that off when they started doing bad. But the losses in that program ended up being, last report I could look up was $750 million that the insurance fund lost. Well, the losses are much greater when you tend to take it into the amount of capital that was lost in the credit unions invested in them. And in my career, it was fortunate that I also worked with some of the other big type of participation loans that are out there and that the church participation loans were one that were pretty widespread, tended to perform quite well. That is another one that was, when you're looking at those types of loans, they were quite different to look at. So just how comfortable were those purchasers in being able to look at those types of loans of which they don't normally grant. So we'll kind of touch on some of those as we go through this presentation. You know, when you bring up certain types of loans being booked by certain credit unions and having high concentrations and then Earlier, you mentioned, you know, 4.7%, I think, of all loans are in. Was it loans, 4.7% of loans that are in participations? Did I have that right? Or was yeah, it participation loans to total loans? Okay, great. And, you know, one thing I used to say as a regional director is you can put a little bit of something in any amount and you can probably manage that risk. It was in situations where people got a little bit too, too much booked either on their own books, or they like that yield so much that they went after a little bit too much of it. And then another observation about the medallions, as you were talking about them, it reminded me of something a former NCUA board member, Mark McWaters, would say when the topic came up. He would talk about the horse and buggy. You know, the horse and buggy was a great way of getting around this country until the automobile came along. And there was a correlation in the taxi medallions, Uber and the other Lyft and those companies came along. And it changed the game, you know, so it looked low risk until there was a seismic event. And sometimes those seismic events can cause losses. I'll just leave that at that. So NCUA handles things in different ways. They have guidance and they have regulations to deal with different things. In this instance, as we're talking about participations and eligible obligations, there are regulations for both of these. So what are your thoughts? Any comments you want to make relative to the regulations on both participations and eligible obligations. I don't want to go into a lot of detail because 
these two regulations are not lengthy and they're fairly easy to understand. The participations are covered under 701.22 and the eligible obligations are in 701.23. And in order to really apply these, you just have to identify a few specific things for each of the loan. Number one is who's the originating lender, who the borrower initially contracts for the loan is generally the answer for that one. And then is it a whole loan purchase or a partial loan purchase? You just need to know that. The loan type has some carries into this regulation. The borrower's membership status, that one comes up. And then your CAMEL code comes into play for some of the regulations and what can be purchased. And that generally, if you're a CAMEL one or two, you have ability to, to do more under these regulations. Big picture of the participation regulation is the original originating lenders continue to participate throughout the life of that loan. And that's kind of a strength of participation loans in that they always have skin in the game. The federal credit unions must maintain at least 10% of the outstanding balance. The state credit unions must retain at least 5%, but that can be subject to the state law. The borrower has to be become a member or be a member of one of the participating credit unions. And it must be a loan that the credit union is empowered to grant. You can't like exceed the member business loan limit by buying participation loans because they, they count towards those limits. There are uh, limitations upon buying from one lender that uh, greater of 5 million or 100% of net worth. There is a COVID increase to that limit that'll go through one more year. They just extended that to now you can go up to 200% of net worth and type of a limitation. The credit union should have policies on this that would limit each type of loan purchase and a single borrower limit. There is a need for a written agreement with the originating lender and of course, this does apply to state credit unions under 741. Big picture on eligible obligations is primarily purchasing whole loans of their members is generally what it was designed for. It is one that allows for the purchase of loans from liquidating credit unions and the general facilitating the loan pools and this is where the CAMA one and two credit unions can generally purchase eligible obligations of non-members from a federally insured credit union. So that kind of helps the industry with that part there and keeps it in healthy credit unions. The investment committee must approve the purchase. This has to be the same thing, it has to be a loan that the credit unions empowered to grant. There's a limitation on outstanding balance of eligible obligations of 5% of unimpaired capital and surplus. And there are, you can get exclusions of that amount. And then under both of these policies, there's waiver provisions inside of them. And that's described in the regulation. So, Very so good. Like I say, if you're going to do this, read the regulation because it isn't going to take a lot of your time. And Steve, we've had some conversations with some credit unions that have maybe not necessarily read the regulations or understood the regulations and may have acquired loans that they thought were participation loans, but in reality, they were eligible obligation loans. 
And so they found themselves in a situation where they had different limits. They had the the 5% of unimpaired capital and surplus, and or they may not have had you know the camel code that worked with how they acquired those loans. So it's very important to buy or beware, to understand what it is that you're purchasing. Is it a participation? Is it an eligible obligation? Obviously, in the end, if it's borrower's ability to repay and what's the collateral, there's that side of it that makes the, the asset very similar. But how you record it on the books can have a material impact on, on how NCUA will respond and whether or not you know it's your policy that decides how much you have in participation loans as opposed to the regulation that can decide how much you can have in eligible obligations. Any comments on on what I've said there? All those things always come down to what you and I have talked about over the years. You always start with everything is, can we? You have to get through the, can we do that by knowing the regulation, the limitations, and then you get to the, should we do this? Which we'll kind of cover here on the later part of this, but uh, knowing the regulation helps you clear that, can we do this hurdle? Very good. Very well said. So let's see, you mentioned that the rule participation applies to state charters under 741, which is I think 741.8, perhaps the purchase and assets of assumption of liabilities. Anything you want to add on that topic? No, that's just where it references uh, some of the specific parts that of the regulation that apply to, to state charters, it, it doesn't really add a lot other than basically say you're really subject to the rules, almost the same as the feds. Got it. Got it. All right. So let's get into the whys in the house. So why would a credit union decide that they want to sell participation loans or eligible obligations from the what you saw in your career at NCUA? Yeah, it is a great tool available for managing your risk and your balance sheet. The main reason that we've seen it, of course, and didn't really work for the taxi ones, was you would like to use it for eliminating concentration risk. Well, that comes in in pretty handy as long as people recognize that there's only so much of this type of loan that we want to put on our balance sheet, but we have a lot of demand for it. So we can go ahead and make those loans and find credit unions that we're willing to buy those participations. It also can be used if, if a credit union has a loan they, they would like to do, but it's a large loan and they would like to be able to spread some of that risk out so you can accommodate a larger loan than, than normal. You might start doing participation loans because you need liquidity. And that's a fairly common one. It can improve earnings. Uh, I did see in some of the credit unions active with participations, they held the 10%, but they had, these were like a commercial type loan, but they would have that borrower had to have compensating balances with them as part of the loan. And then they also charge servicing for the participation loans. So if you kind of take all of the earnings that they had on top of that 10% that they held, it was a really high yield on that. So there is one way that you can improve earnings because it's just a little bit leveraged. Sometimes you would just, uh, do it to comply with a regulatory requirements in that maybe you have the ability to, by improving earnings, you need some improvement to your net worth ratio. You may be able to do some participations to allow you to improve your net worth ratio. And the other one is just to manage interest rate risk. If you want to offload because of this, maybe the fixed rate on some of your 
loans you want to participate, you could change your interest rate risk a little bit. So there's lots of reasons why somebody would want to sell them. And all they cover a whole bunch of ways that credit unions can manage their balance sheet and income saving. Very well said, Steve. I've got nothing to add to that. You nailed, you had excellent reasons there listed. So, or discussed. So let's flip that. So why would a credit union want to purchase participation loans or eligible obligations in your mind? Generally, the big reason somebody might want to do it is they don't like the yield that they're getting on their investments and they have excess liquidity. It's a product out there and you're kind of active in the industry and helping to help your fellow credit unions meet loan demand within the system. The other thing is, is you could have staff that has the ability and experience to do certain types of loans, but you're just not getting that demand out of your own membership. So you want to take advantage of staff expertise that can evaluate the type of participation loan that's out there. And it's a great way to take advantage of building up a new loan type by going slow at the start. You can improve earnings because the yield on these is certainly going to generally be higher than investments. And those are generally the immediate reasons, but I don't know if you can come up with any more on that, Mark. The the only thing that jumps into my head, which is really, you mentioned what, 2,000 credit unions are doing it. That's like 40%. I just know that a lot of smaller credit unions, it's done at every asset level, but there may be some smaller credit unions who have issues with their field of membership, yet they want to maintain their autonomy and they can find some loans that actually fit what their risk appetite is, where they might want to do some of that because it provides them again to remain a small credit union as opposed to getting gobbled up and as part of the, you know, the mergers that happen every year. And just to highlight, you know, you talked about people helping people and credit unions helping credit unions. That's one real nice thing about credit unions is if I've got loan demand and you don't, there's a way that we can make these types of loans or eligible obligations that help my members and help your members at the same time because it improves your profitability and allows me to make loans to my members. So that's a good summary of why people would want to on both sides. So obviously, you know, NCUA wants to make sure that you do it in a safe and sound manner. Credit unions want to make sure they do it in a safe and sound manner. So there are risks in anything that you do. There's a risk to walk outside the door. There's a risk for me to get into the car and drive to the grocery store. And there are risks in doing participation loans and eligible obligations. What are your thoughts relative to that? It does open the door all kinds of new types of risks that credit union can look at. One of the interesting things in the regulation is you, and it's actually in the regulation that You can purchase a loan even if the credit union doesn't originate that type of loan. And that's when I always come into that creates the potential for danger because credit unions can purchase loans that are really not all that good at looking at. And they've done that. So that's why it becomes important to know what you're buying. The other thing that comes into play is proper accounting. These things can get complicated if you start having other issues that would make them necessarily not even participation loans or eligible obligations if you start dealing with recourse and repurchase options. Then you start dealing with secured lending. So you need to make sure that your accounting is 
people are able to have the knowledge to properly guide you and properly accounting and recognizing those. Understanding all of the contractual rights that come about for these things is important. You're, you're going to deal with agreements. And so you might want lawyers to be able to look at that and understand that. Reporting on the call report can also be a little bit tricky. So you want to make sure once again, if you have good accounting, you'll get that right because it's easy to get nicked on your call report because of poor reporting. I've talked a little bit about the agreement. The quality of the participation agreement is a big part of how safe I think your participation will be. You have to have that timely credit information and notice of changes of borrower status that the originator would have to share with you. The requirement to consult with participants to modify the loan and actions on defaulted loans. That part was actually specifically mentioned in the postmortem of the taxi loan situation. And then it said that a number of adjustments were made to the loans the participants were not aware of. Then that agreement should also cover things like resolution and event the disagreement between the parties. So that covers a whole part of the things. And actually NCUA and some other documentation has identified some unsafe and unsound operating policies and practices in loan participations. And it really all comes down to, you know, due diligence, due diligence, due diligence, but you're going to have it because you're dealing with third parties. And Sue always has, you have to do, know who you're doing business with. That's a really important. You have to do diligence on the individual loans and the loan policies that you're buying them from. Investigation of the individual borrower's credit position, same as any other loan that you would look at. The condition of the security properties, adequacy of appraisals. If you're not reviewing the reports provided by the servicer, that unsafe and unsound because sometimes they are giving good reports, but nobody at the credit union is looking at it because, well, you know, the originator is taking care of it. Well, you still have the responsibility to look at that loan. You need to have all of the copies of the original documents. That's a requirement. Then you want to, you should have kind of all of the relevant documents and could be, you know, some of the legal opinions and those types of things involved with the loan. Sometimes you could be looking to purchase loans with kind of a higher yield. And certainly if the, the higher yield usually means more risk, you have to make sure that you uh, have evaluated why that yield is higher. Is it due to risk? And is that appropriate? If you're going to do participations, you might want to start off kind of small and do a few and make sure that you got all of the accounting and everything together versus saying, well, we're doing participation loans. Let's do a whole bunch of them and then end up in trouble with your examiner. So those are kind of the general, like unsafe and unsound things that can be brought up by getting involved in these programs. So on the topic of kind of tiptoeing into a new product, NCUA always looks at things that you do new. How are you doing them? You know, one thing I used to say was, we want to see you crawl before you walk and walk before you run. And that's a good way to get into any program. You talked about the call report and making sure you fill that out. It's also my understanding that until recently, it might even be this quarter, the ability to, to code on the 5,300 relative to eligible obligations, NCUA wasn't even asking the right questions yet. And I believe they've resolved that with this last cycle. I was having a conversation with a client the other day 
who mentioned that change is frustrating for people. And so the new rules in the, in the call report and the new instructions, this one particular credit union, which is a pretty big credit union, was having some challenges deciphering this new call report. And I'm sure they'll work, NCUA will work the kinks out. And, you know, those instructions can be complicated, especially when they're changed, but you do want to make sure you report it correctly. You talked about the agreements. I refer to bell curves all the time. You know, there's good agreements, there's bad agreements, and there's mediocre agreements. And that can run both ways. They can be good for the seller, but bad for the buyer or good for the buyer and bad for the seller. You really should negotiate those so that it's everybody in the agreement is treated appropriately. And, you know, if you don't like what you see there, you should negotiate to get terms that make more sense for your credit union. You mentioned due diligence. I'll just touch on that. There's a letter to credit unions. It's pretty old now on third-party due diligence. That comes up in exams a lot. It's one of the things that you will see and cited as an examiner findings or cited, cited in a document resolutions that you need to understand your third parties and you need to do due diligence relative to them. So yeah, you hit the main points. Those are some that I wanted to kind of highlight myself. So I think we're getting closer to wrapping this up, but so we've talked about the regulations on both eligible obligations and loan participations. Are there any other resources that if someone was wanting to, you know, do their due diligence or consider getting into this, if they haven't done so that you would recommend anybody look at? Yeah, I'll touch on the ones that that I tend to spend any time on and and share with, with anybody getting into this is there's a, like the Mark touched on the third party letter, that one's from 2007. In 2008, NCUA issued a evaluating loan participant programs letter, a supervisory letter. And that one is actually pretty good. It, it covers a lot of areas and it has a questionnaire in there that can be filled out that is, has a lot of questions and, and covers all of the areas that we talked about on this one. And then there's a narrative that's that's very good on that. The other item that I go through, so let's see, if you're looking for that one, it'd be letter to credit unions 08-CU-26 from November uh, 2008. The other items I look at anytime I'm dealing with the regulation is the preambles. The last major change to any of this rule, both 701.22 and 701.23, we're published in June of 2013, so you can go to the Federal Register and find the preamble of those rules from 2013, and that contains a lot of the minutiae that might you might find helpful. The FDIC's examination manual of examination policies under the loan section does have parts to talk about loan participations that seem to carry over pretty well, especially when it talks about risks that could be included in, in these, these types of products. So those would be kind of a, a quick list of, of other resources. Okay, great. Well, before we wrap this up, I want to touch on a couple of things you said there and make an analogy. So you referenced FDIC and NCUA guidance. The NCUA guidance we'll have in the show notes. We can also perhaps, looks like we can put the FDIC guidance there as well. And like you said, credit unions are not required to follow FDIC rules, but reading them and coming away with a, you know an aha moment or something that you can use to supplement your program is definitely, it's definitely worthwhile looking at that as you build out your programs. And then the analogy I want to make 
is one I came up with when we were talking to Vin recently, Vin Beaton on commercial lending. And Steve, you're so good at highlighting and pulling things out of the preamble because the preambles can show what the intent of the board is. And what we pointed out in that last episode is you can look at the preamble of the proposed rule and you can look at the preamble of the final rule to see what changed. And then there's also the final rule. And, you know, if you look at a movie or a play that you go to, movies and plays have three acts. The last act, using an analogy to regulations, the last act of a a regulation is the actual final rule. Now, if you only watched the last one third of a movie and looked at the final rule, you wouldn't really understand how you got to that point. The preamble helps explain how NCUA got to that point. And you can look at the preamble of the proposed versus which I would view as the first act. I would view the preamble to the final as the second act and then the regulation as the final act. And to really understand the context of, of what NCUA is trying to do relative to the regulations, I would look at all three acts, the preamble of the proposed, the preamble of the final, and then the final rule. So, Steve, I appreciate everything you've talked about here, and I want to thank you for your time. And listeners, I appreciate you spending your time with us today, and I hope to have you listen again down the road for another episode of With Flying Colors. This is Mark Trichel signing off, and we'll talk to you again very soon, every Monday or so, it seems. Take care. Thank you for joining us on this episode of With Flying Colors. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app to hear future episodes where subject matter experts of all varieties will provide tips on how to achieve success with NCUA. If you would like to learn more about how we assist credit unions, check out our services at marktrichel.com. 